Today's topic is about the Super Petrel, a small, light sport aircraft that's come a long way, so stay tuned. You're listening to Water Flying, a weekly podcast to bring you all things seaplanes. I'm Steve McCoy, the Executive Director of the Seaplane Pilots Association. And I'm Abby Kellett, Assistant to the Executive Director at the Seaplane Pilots Association, and I'm also a flight instructor in seaplanes. The Seaplane Pilots Association is committed to protecting and promoting water flying. We achieve this by working to maintain and expand waterway access. We promote seaplane safety, create educational programs, produce the only full-color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community, and we create exciting seaplane events. We want to continue to improve this podcast, and we encourage your feedback. Feel free to reach out to us if there is anything you would like to hear in future episodes. So thanks for listening. Let's jump right in. Today we're speaking with Roger Helton, CEO of Super Patrol, and Sean Chevalier, Chief Pilot at Super Patrol. Thank you both for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. So, hey, the Super Petrel is fairly new to the U.S. market, uh, might be new to a lot of our listeners, but you actually, guys, you've had several hundred uh, aircraft that were delivered internationally before coming to the U.S. market. Roger, uh, I'm familiar with the aircraft, but why don't you take us through the journey of where Super Petrel has come from and where we are today with it? Well, good afternoon, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. We um began our operation here in the United States in 2014, and the actual very first airplane that came in was still experimental. It had not met the requirements for the FAA were ASTM standards, but the FAA actually went to Brazil, went to the factory, and looked over the procedures and the ASTM standards at the time that were being followed in the production of the airplane, and authorized the airplane to be marketed and sold as a light sport. The very first airplane that came in in about 2000, late 13, was an experimental one. But in 2014, serial number 295, uh, which was the end number on airplane ending in LS for a light sport, the only one that did that, uh, was the first of the certified light sport Super Patrol aircraft to enter the United States. 295. Up to that point, the company, Skoda Aeronautica, previously named Idra Aeronautica in Brazil, had made 295 airplanes, or 94, <clears throat> before they, uh, they entered the U.S. market. So uh, the heritage is almost 20 years long, since 2001, when the very first prototype took air flight on a grass field in Ipona, Brazil. Uh, the advancements in the airplane have been incredible. Uh, I laugh when I see pictures of the first few serial numbers. They look like the right flyer compared <laughs> to what these airplanes look like today with the, the Garmin G3X system. So... We're proud of the advancements and the changes and the improvements to the airplane over this 20-year period of time. Absolutely. And I mean, if it was if it started out looking like the Bright Brothers and it ended up what it is today, that's certainly a change. And it's, it's really interesting. I know that there is a definite journey that the airplane physically takes going from Brazil to the U.S. Why don't you take us through, like, what is involved when an individual pers- purchases a Petrel airplane? It starts off with, you know, an interest and usually a demo flight. And then we provide any questions and answers you know, that, the, that the potential buyer might want. Then they come, I like them to come see the facility here. 
not just take a demo at some airport somewhere in some other part of the country. Come see the whole picture. Fly with us in the airplane and see what the support and the training is all about. And then when they decide to make a purchase, uh, they start off with an initial deposit. Uh, within 30 days, then they make the full down payment. And then the construction period begins. It's usually a 180-day period from that point uh, before the actual delivery of the airplane. We've got a video that's out right now, Super Patrol Delivery on YouTube, that really kind of walks you through that entire process, seeing an airplane in time-lapse uh, photography mode uh, at the factory in Brazil, and then that 6,000-mile journey on board a ship ending up in the port of Jacksonville and then delivered there to Ormond Beach. And I've never seen my guys work so fast as they do the time-lapse photography, again, reinstalling the wings and getting the airplane ready to fly. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's a great video. Uh, We'll make sure to put a link to that video uh, in the show notes because uh, it's a pretty amazing video. It is. Yeah, we were proud of it. It's the first one we've done from a professional standpoint using uh, our friends, Brad Fuller and, 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 you know, to do that. But they just did a a great job. I like Brad's voice on there because I said, everybody's going to trust you. You sound like Morgan Freeman. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a real compliment. Brother Brad, as I call him. So we've had him on the show uh, uh, for all of the people listening. He's also one of our our main photographers for Waterflying Magazine uh, doing our photos. We just did a photo shoot with him a couple of weeks ago, and we typically talk to him a lot, almost daily. So, um, you know, we've been working together quite a while and I still haven't been over to your facility. My airplane's in annual right now, but I was telling Abby, I really had hoped to record this podcast sitting with you in the facility. So my commitment to you is as soon as my airplane gets out of annual, uh, we're going to come see you. But but he knows that, like, if we do actually make the trip over there, we have to go for a flight. Of course. So it's just so you know, you know, you're looking me in the eye saying, yeah, you know, we need to make a trip over to Ormond Beach and also go fly. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, given it's going to happen, take his car keys before he leaves. So, he, <laughs> so I've been frustrated. The airplane seems like it's been an annual a long time, but we've been very busy here at the office. So um, you are giving us a little indication. How many air, uh, Super Petrels have been delivered here in the United States again? And what serial number are you up to right now? I know the serial numbers are pretty close to reality or exactly reality. Uh, this Chevy, uh, we, we've had about 40 uh, delivered here in the States so far. Wow, that's and, great. Uh, and it's been pretty robust over the past year, believe it or not. Yeah, I know our good friend uh, uh, Bert Rutan ended up buying one as well. Yeah, not from us. He bought a used one. Yeah, he did buy a used one, but I know uh, Bert and I are close friends, and uh, I know they purchased one as well, so they're operating it uh, out in Idaho. We we think that's a good uh, indication of the value of the airplane Bert Rutan likes. Wow. And I get to see about air shows. You better not let Tanya hear this because it's her airplane, not Bert. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure Tanya is listening, actually. So uh, Tanya is Bert's lovely wife. Um, So, yes, let me me restate that, what I just said. I'm going to retract what I said, and I'm going to say that Tanya Rutan purchased a Super Petrol. Very nice. Very nice. (laughs) They are definitely a cool airplane to look at. I've seen them at air shows. I think we saw them at Dave Hench's, um 
Yeah, Eagle's Nest. To, yeah, we haven't flown one yet, though, so there's a problem with they that. They were sitting We're, next to each other. It was cool. They found yeah. each other, and they're parking next to each other. So it's just you know, a neat airplane. Very interesting scenario that occurred for us because Brittany Frank had taken the airplane at Whipper and on train out of, out of Florida, a gentleman that sold the original owner of the Super Patrol. She called me and said, I don't know what to do with this thing. What, how much should I be asking for it? So I gave her a ballpark figure for resale purposes, and she hung on to it. Didn't have too many interested people in it right away. So lo and behold, she called me. She said, I love that airplane. I bought it myself. <laughs> and if I come down there, you train me to fly. So Chevy and I did. We trained Britain then to fly her airplane. But we had a demo here that was a sister airplane. So the numbers were right next to each other. So she went <laughs> back and put for a couple of years. But the thing that was so unique about the whole thing with Tom Rattan, it's the very first time that a lady pilot owned a Super Patrol and sold it to another lady pilot. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's As a awesome. lady pilot, I can say that that's pretty neat. So just seeing yeah. this airplane and falling in love with it and then sharing it with another female pilot. That's pretty cool. So, well, of course, she had to put makeup on it and give it a name. So it's called Daisy. Oh, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to personalize it, right? So Very much so. You know, so yeah, so there's a unique thing about the Super Petrel is this, you know, first woman owned aircraft being sold to another woman owner, which is which is awesome. And the airplane itself is unique in the seaplane world as it is a biplane, which is very unusual. And I know uh, you guys have been very innovative in a lot of the things you're doing. The airplane has been designed to be very uh We'll just say uh, non-complicated and very, uh, very easy in its systems. Uh, and I know you're working on some enhancements as well. Uh, do you have anything to share with us on on some of the unique features of this biplane seaplane uh, and mm-hmm. some of the, the new features you're working on? Yes, yeah, Steve, um, as you know, the light sport category, they wanted airplanes that are really simple to operate so that uh, they could generate more interest in flying if you could get into uh, get a, a rating with half the amount of time of a private license. So they didn't want a lot of complications in the aircraft. So one of the benefits of having the bi-wing is that we don't need flaps. And so that's one less lever, one less, uh, you know, handle to play with. Um, and then the other nice thing about having the bi-wing is that the lower wing keeps water out of the prop. So even though it's a composite prop with an incandescent leading edge that is erosion resistant, the lower wing keeps most of the water out of the prop anyway. And surprisingly, uh, a lot of people are like, oh, well, you know, it's probably pretty draggy. You know, it's probably pretty slow because of the bi wing. But it's a, it's a slick wing. Both of the wings are very slick. So we see uh, 100 miles per hour uh, routinely at, at cruise. And it burns about four gallons per hour um, and then a little bit less up high. So this is a 500-mile airplane. And as far as the uh, refinements, when we first started selling them in 2016, or 2014, rather, uh, it wasn't night capable. And that was because in most of the world, you don't fly at night. And we told the company, hey, you know, in the States, they're going to expect to fly at night. So they... Made them night. They're very receptive. They made it night capable, um, and then um, we added a uh, cooling kit, uh, Rotax the horsepower a little bit, and leaned out, and all of a sudden the engines were running a little bit hot. 
and the company came up with a cooling kit that they put on there. And uh, uh, so it mitigated that. And then um, they, uh, being in a high PA location, they kept the, uh, the weight down to 1320. And we told them, hey, you know, we're not really competitive with that. And they said, well, the numbers won't look competitive if we go to 1430. Um, and I, I told people to understand, you know, that uh, you're a higher PA in Brazil. So uh, they increased the weight to 1430. Then uh, with the 400 series coming up, uh, they're going to have lateral trim uh, available to it. Uh, and, and that's uh, in addition to the uh, Garmin G3X. We used to have the Dynon system, and we created the Garmin G3X. So uh, the 400 series is going to have all of those refinements. That's neat to see, you know, the constant improvement that you guys are making. So just some of the points which I think are really cool. You know, me flying a J3 on floats. The spray rail, you know, it's great because we have bigger floats on our J3, but there is still water getting in that prop. So it's neat to think that the entire lower wing is actually your spray guard. That's pretty interesting to think about. And then, you know, the 912, so what you're using with the Rotax. I know we've talked to a couple other light sport manufacturers, and the 912, what do you think of that engine? Like, I... I flew it with the air cam when I got my multi-engine C down in Sebring, Florida. But I, I really like that engine. What do you think of it on the on the Petrel? We call it bulletproof. Uh, you know, yeah. I I would never, you know, have an experience with live comings and continentals uh, and hot starts and just trouble starting them, you know, sometimes. Uh, I would never consider shutting off the engine in the middle of a lake. And I do it routinely with a road tax because wow. I, I'm just not worried that it's going to start back up. You know, for years, I always lamented, why can't they make an aviation engine that starts like a car? Well, they, they have with the road tax uh, engines. The funny thing, though, is if you get an older uh, pilot come up here at an air show, they go, road tax engines, snowmobile engines, huh? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're, they're really not. They're aviation engines now. And but that's a stigma that, that stuck with a lot of people for, you know, like I said, an older generation. Um, but it's no longer an issue. These these are aviation engines and they run really well. Yeah, people need to realize that the uh, Predator drones use the Rotax engine. And so the military has been using Rotax engines for a long time in pretty demanding circumstances. And I know that talking to Phil Lockwood, it seems like they're bringing the engines back and tearing them apart, all the military engines, and they're constantly making updates and improvements to the Rotax engine. And so the amount of data and engineering feedback that they've gotten from the the drone program with the military has been phenomenal. I mean, it's what a gift to a manufacturer to be able to just burn hundreds of thousands of hours on your engines and get the engines back to tear them apart and and dissect them and make engineering improvements. So my impression of the Rotax is a great engine. And furthermore, you can burn auto fuel in it. It's the preferred fuel. So fueling options where, you know, 100 LL may be hard to come by are eliminated with the fact that not only can you burn auto gas, but it's more preferred than, than 100 LL even. Sure. You know, Steve, one thing that's unique about the Rotex, they all are certified to 2,000 hours. Well, guess how many hours they average before they really need to be overhauled? I don't know. Tell me. 2,000. They go all the way. And all the you way. you almost never see a cylinder replace. Hello, Lycoming and, and, and Camel. <laughs> that never happens if you've owned any of those engines. 
And uh, I think the biggest thing we like to point out to people that buy the airplane and want to do work on it themselves and they get the certification in the lights part repairman with the maintenance endorsement is that they go through the Garmin training on that airplane. Uh, our good friends fell with uh, Dean Bogle. They teach such a wonderful course at Lockwood Aviation and Sebring, and they will teach you how to work on that. If you've got an AMP mechanic, yes, you're, you know, you've got a lot of experience, guys with IAs and all that. You do not want to tackle this IS engine or any Rotex engine without some kind of training on the engine first. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So having, um, you know, owned a 150 with a Continental, <laughs> I can tell you that's pretty accurate. Your cylinders start dying on you, which mine did yeah. on the way to Venice. And, so, yeah. <laughs> um, pretty so, interesting. And, and, you know, the fact that the Rotax is used on the air cam, it's used on almost every, I mean, synonymously, I would say it's at least 90% of the LSA aircraft, whether they're a seaplane or a land airplane, use Rotax engines. That's for a reason. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, having flown Cessnas you know, early on in my career, uh, the other nice thing is that the only time you knew how much fuel you had in the aircraft is when it was full and when it was empty. Right. And in between, you're watching, you know, especially the old Cessna gauges, you're watching it bump off the empty and you're like, is it empty or do I have five gallons left? You, <laughs> you know, you just really didn't know. And, you know, you kind of knew how much it burned and you had a rough idea of how far you could go. Well, we've got a customer that, that uh, flies his to Jamaica over Cuba. And if he didn't, and the point is that the 912IS knows exactly how much it's burning. The, the fuel gauges are still not, you know, uh, as good capacitive uh, fuel gauges. Um, they're better than they used to be, but the engine knows exactly how much it's burning at, at uh, you know, at any point. So, he, you know, once he gets to altitude, he knows if he's going to make it or not. And and that's that's very important. You know, that you, you know, it used to be we're like, yeah, I think I'm going to be okay. But now you know exactly. You know exactly. So that four gallons an hour is pretty accurate? It, it's uh, very – it's actually less. If, if you're going uh, – in, in uh, gas about performance, uh, this air plane can go up to 12,000 feet, and I routinely fly, you know, 10.5 to get over airspace, mm-hmm. and it's 3.7 wow. gallons per hour, so, you know, it, it goes down a little bit, and you can really stretch this thing out. What's your range? So, how much are you carrying? How far can you go? We can uh, carry 25 gallons and easily get 500 miles reserve. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. amazing. <laughs> Which makes it a great Bahamas machine. Right? Yes, which wow. I have. <laughs> and I know that you guys advertise yourselves as, um, you know, corrosive resistant. So what is in, what's involved in that? Like, you know, I mean, seawater operations, we're telling everyone to maybe be cautious operating in saltwater. How does the Super Patrol do, do in the ocean? Yeah. So when I went down to Brazil and talked to the company, I asked them all these questions. And they said... And, you know, they don't want to oversell it. And sure. they made it to be salt water tolerant is what they told me. Mm-hmm. Just like anything that you put in salt water, it's not a good idea to leave it there. And it's a good idea to rinse it off afterwards. Um, but unlike you know some other airplanes uh, in the light sport category, they minimize the metal that other than the engine that is exposed to the environment. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with a carbon Kevlar hull and carbon fiber wings. 
about the only metal below the engine is the landing gear, and it's corrosion resistant. Okay. So um, I know I can't wait to put some videos that I want to record with you guys onto YouTube, showing off some of the highlights of the aircraft and the performance. And it's not just the flying performance. The airplane flies very well. Uh, It has great performance, but also its water handling is really pretty spectacular and something you guys like to show off. I can't wait to put some of those videos on YouTube uh, to show people just how good the water handling is. We've got some videos that have been around for a while, and we kind of laugh when we look at them. We see the changes in the airplane, you know, like the one that came out of Brazil probably six years ago. Uh, this gentleman just doing circle, you know, figure eights on the water and taking off, and even makes one landing where he touches down on the right sponsor and the fuselage <laughs> simultaneously. They wow. both touch, down and he's in a turn. It's like he just landed that thing at 100 feet and turned it around. And it's like we don't recommend that. From the time I started flying the airplane, Chevy taught me to fly. I've strived to get close to what this guy can do, but I've never gotten to that point. I asked Mr. Scott or Rodrigo, who was that test pilot? He said, oh, he's not a test pilot. He's a doctor. He owns that airplane. <laughs> he flies everywhere and does all these videos. So uh, we saw him at Sun of Fun two or three years ago, and Rodrigo said, I'd like to give him one of our brand-new airplanes and have him just go back out and refilm all that stuff again, only with the new airplane. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the performance is incredible on the airplane. Things like we don't have a water rub, but if you see how sharp we turn on the water, you can see there's really not a need for the water rub. They went with a, a larger tail to, to negate the need for a water rudder. Um, and that one of the things that people notice when they fly the airplane for the first time is you don't, it doesn't need a lot of input, and that's because of that big tail. Once it's in the water, uh, we use that big tail to turn it. Um, But it helps with the maneuverability. Yeah, and something that comes to mind for me for the the lack of a water rudder is it's a very clean hull, and when the gear is retracted, the gear is retracted, uh, which makes it uh, not very likely to pick up invasive species, especially without a water rudder as well. So there's not a lot hanging out there. So one of the big topics we always talk about is invasive species, and what I like about the design of this particular aircraft is that it is very clean. The hull is very clean. There's not a lot of places for invasive species to get hung up. So I'll just throw that uh, in there. <laughs> that's something I, I remember to sell. But I'm going to remember that the next time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of it as we're talking. I'm thinking, that's an man, it's, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, the airplane is so maneuverable, and, uh, you know, Roger and I now have quite a bit of time in it. We're very comfortable, and, and, and it's a, it has a lot of capability I have to rein myself in on demo flights because I don't want to scare the, the customer, uh, you know, trying to show them just how much you can do. Right. Uh, but it, it, you know, like you said, there's plenty of videos out there of his performance. And, you know, it's probably at best 70% of what it can really do in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. Wow. When we're on the stop on the water, we're doing maybe 30 knots, 35 knots. And we're watching ground speed, not airspeed. Of course. The change between up and one up one down one. And what a couple of maneuvers that usually, you know, get people's attention in the other seat, demo seat, is if you're going downwind on the water or say like 10 knots of wind and all of a sudden you kick in the rudder and start turning crosswind to turn back into the wind for takeoff. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? Don't you need to slow down and get off the step? Uh, no. We just keep right on going. There's no tendency for the airplane to 
to, to, to flip over, you know, because of that, that downwind up, you know, end of the wind turn. And when, when I'm doing the step turns on you know, normal water and showing airplane capability, I really decide, you know, the guy's doing okay. I'm not watching the airplane so much when I'm doing these turns. I'm watching the guy in the right seat to see how far I can push before I <laughs> And I, are you okay? With oh, this? Roger. Oh, yeah. Keep going. So uh, that, that we do, and that it, it will turn incredibly quick. So uh, it, it is fun to do. So you're talking to me on float planes, teaching that. And, you know, you say, yeah, that downwind to upwind turn. And I'm sitting here like, are you sure? Because <laughs> that's something, you know, I'm teaching to the students with the wind and the centrifugal force acting together in that downwind to upwind turn. But it's amazing, you know, the Super Petrel, if if you can safely make that turn, you know, it's so low to the water, it might not have that issue. So, but I don't know. I haven't flown it yet. We need to work on that. We need to work on that. <laughs> You're riding in the pontoon. So there it is. Exactly. Exactly. So it's going from a truck, me and a float plane down to a little sport car. Wow, so, um, a truck. I'm very excited. I, mean, it, it kind I don't know of that is. I would call a J3 a truck. It's but. a small truck. <laughs> but it is, you know, you're sitting higher, you climb into it. It's just kind of interesting. So moving on, it's just, it's a cool airplane. I'm looking forward to getting into it. So we've spoken to other manufacturers. They're extremely proud of their training program, and they've committed themselves to keeping their new customers that have bought their seaplanes safe. So they're not just throwing them the keys and saying, good luck, buddy. So what does Super Patrol's training program consist of, and what can a new owner expect before they're turned loose? The, the first thing I like to uh, try to convince an owner, new owner to do is go to their seaplane rating. Sure. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that, just like we were talking, you know, I went to, I trained on float planes, J3 Cub, and you, you learn all of the dangers involved with seaplanes. And then when you get in a hauled airplane, you, you realize a lot of those dangers disappear. Right. But, you know, if you go the opposite direction, you learn to fly in a hauled airplane, and then you go to a float plane, you're, you're pretty dangerous. You know, I, mean, I don't think anybody's going to do that without any training. But uh, like I said, it's better to go from float plane to hull plane. So I, I recommend that customers go get their seaplane rating, and then they have their seaplane rating. <clears throat> the other way is to uh, get the uh, logbook endorsement for the light sport uh, seaplane. Um, but then it's still not a, a full seaplane rating, and it's only a two-day course. We'd like to uh, recommend they do that. Uh, if they choose to want to get uh, trained in their airplane, we used to not have a resource for that, but now we do a company called Water Wings up in Alabama. Mm-hmm. They'll do the training in your airplane They've got a DP on staff that will do the checkout. Um, so going back to the original question, if you go and get your seaplane rating, then you come to us and we give you whatever training insurance requires because that's usually the driving factor. We've had uh, one customer needed 25 hours before uh, they were going to turn him loose. So sure. that's, that's what drives that. Excellent. Yeah. And I know Water Wings, we have them listed in our 2021 flight training guide. They're listed on the SPA website and they are also listed in the Water Landing Directory app. So if you're looking for information on Water Wings, you can find it through the Seaplane Pilots Association. She says that because she's been working on the flight training directory. I want it updated. (laughs) I'm working so hard on that. So So I know... um, 
uh, as a member of, of our Seaplane Pilots Association's Manufacturers Safety Group, you guys have really shown a deep commitment to committing to keeping our community safe and to helping us reduce accidents with seaplanes, specifically in gear down water landing issues, which seem to be one of the most pr- uh, prime offenders, we'll say. So what do you think every uh, seaplane manufacturer and these pilots can do uh, to reduce our accidents within our community? Well, one of the things that comes to mind is that uh, the Super Patrol uh, Flight Instructor Association uh, tries to push is that you do three before landing checks, and crucially, you raise and lower the landing gear on each leg. Uh, there's a tendency, and I've done it before, that if you're doing multiple legs and go-arounds, that you just leave the gear out or you, or you just leave it up and... We stress that, you know, as you guys know, the longer you're in aviation, the way you stay safe is good habits, good habit forming. Yes. So if you get in the habit of always checking the gear three times, always actuating it, then you cut down on your chance of having a, a mistake. Absolutely. So there you go. Shipping and I both came out of the airline industry and, you know, Basically, Boeing's and Chevy was military, flew helicopters and all that. But even in the simulator, in the airplane, any check rides, wherever you you get this routine, and it gets pounded into you, no matter what airplane you're flying. Positive rate gear up, positive mm-hmm. rate gear up, and even if you're on the water, go positive rate gear up. Well, it's already up. Okay, we'll keep going. But if you're on a runway and you take off and you're going to go to the water, you may have just saved yourself a little bit of problem when you get to the water. Positive rate gear up. So uh, it, it just just pounded in. And we know when you transition airplanes from like 737s, 7.5s or whatever, they're just the citations, you always want to fall back on that training. It's just like it's built into your, you know, your anatomy, you know, that you, if something happens, something goes wrong, you always fall back to the training that you're most comfortable with or what's most embedded. And if that's always built in, you know, and I still recall from my UPS flying days, you know, that checklist, you know, the memory item for the checklist, like boom, 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 just automatic. And we really try to push that with people learning the airplane and, uh, you know, to get into the habit pattern of being a safe pilot. Yeah, you so- know, build on that, just, just kind of what you alluded to, in the flight instructor handbook, they talk about the law of primacy. Yes. The thing you learn first, you learn best. Mm-hmm. So if you teach good habits to begin with, then you know, it may be the habit that saves you down the road. Yeah, we like to promote ourselves as flip-flop flyers. We've said this on the the podcast, you know, <laughs> I don't know how many times about, you know, how enjoyable and how relaxing and how unique flying seaplanes is yeah. as an experience as a pilot. But you can never lose sight of the fact that our lives and our passengers' lives still depend on our discipline our training and our skill on every flight. And so we always have to have that in mind that we can't skimp on our training. We can't skip on our currency and making sure that we have the ability to fly the aircraft in varying conditions. And we have to have the discipline to do the checklist and the procedures that are going to keep us safe. So uh, I really appreciate having you guys on the manufacturer safety group that, that we host and, and uh, run at the seaplane pilots association and, and we're going to continue that as well. So yeah, it's, um, I think, um, it's been a mistake, uh, companies over the years when they, they try to tout 
how safe their airplanes are. What, what they should be saying is that this is a very safe, safe airplane, and it can just barely kill you. But <laughs> yeah. if you put people a disservice when you tell you and you try to lull them into a false sense of security. You know, these everything that gets airborne, you know, it comes down the wrong angle, you're going to die. So you, you, you want to teach them to respect the aircraft. Yeah, and and I just have to comment on that because look at the Cirrus with the built-in parachute system and right. how much they promote their parachute system in the Cirrus. And now we're seeing auto land functions come into the aircraft and things like that. But we just had a Cirrus hit a metro liner and that parachute didn't prevent that Cirrus from punching a hole in a metro liner. And while the Cirrus made a successful landing, if it would have hit... That metro liner, a split second later, it would have taken the tail off the metro liner and that pilot would have been killed. So, again, it, it it's not just your safety systems. It, it comes down to pilot discipline, training, proficiency, everything else. So, again, I hope people aren't sick of hearing me preach on this. But as the as the primary advocate running this organization, trying to protect this community and our pilots, it's such a dear subject to me. So uh, don't get complacent and and be lulled into just because you have safety systems and you have an aircraft that's very safe. It doesn't mean that you don't need training and, and that you can't make a mistake that's going to be fatal. Exactly. So anyway, I, I, I'll get off my pulpit for now. No, and I know we've talked to other manufacturers, you know, they're putting out these aircraft and they're doing their best to create systems that are keeping the pilot safe. But again, you know, what you're doing with your safety program is, is also going to keep people safe. And I know you've got some real qualified flight instructors that are operating with you. You know, the difference between just a pilot and a good pilot and a great pilot and all that, it, it's making the decision early on when you decide you're going to learn to be a pilot that you're going to set yourself up above. You're going to set yourself with standards that are above average. Uh, you've accepted the role as a pilot. There's a certain degree of, of public confidence that comes with that. And it's once you lose it, it's gone forever. But I always ask myself the question, you know, do the right thing even when no one's looking. You know, even though there's no one in the airplane with me, why am I sitting there holding the checklist? Well, I'm going to because that's what I fall back on. If I don't, if I get you know, disruptive with something, do the right thing. Use the checklist rather than try to remember how to do this thing by memory. You don't want to ever do that. Absolutely. Man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> what can we expect to see from Patrell in the future? Any new developments that you can let us in on? There's, you know, I get frequently, I frequently get asked that question and I'm, and I answer it this way. Absolutely. Yes. These people <laughs> have always got something on the drawing board, but they usually Chevy and I are about the last on the list, in, you know, to find out uh, maintenance changes, technical changes in the airplane. I have a customer say, Hey, wait a minute. It doesn't work like the old one. How's it? What's going on? I said, wait a minute. I need to call the factory. <laughs> and I find out that, okay, now they got the Garmin G3X doing all of this and all that. But you know, the evolution of the airplane since 2001 and that first airplane that, you know, rolled out, it's constantly being evolved. And I'm sure there are things going on right now that we're not privy to. But uh, uh, they, I love the fact that they've made the same airplane for 20 years. It just keeps getting better, not newer, better. The, the company takes input quite well. Uh, like we talked about earlier, uh, we you know, push them for modifications, even if it doesn't make sense to them, you know, coming from a different country mm -hmm. and they listen and they make the, the changes. 
you know, everything is a, a cost benefit, you know, analysis also, also. And every time they make one of these changes, the price goes up. So we're, you know, always debating on, you know, should we or should we not, you know, because the, the price of the aircraft is going to go up. We want to keep our uh, light port seaplane uh, competitive. And I think they do a great job doing that. So, yeah, you're going to see upgrades uh, come, but they're, they're probably going to be uh, incremental. Chevy and I both have been asked many times by Rodrigo Skoda, um, you know, to give him our input. We're the Americans, or he's not. And the American market, the U.S. market, is not one they're we're that familiar with. Although they've spent many years, all of them have been here to the U.S. many, many times. And um, so we would suggest something like, why don't we go to 1430? It's the upper limit for an amphibian right. drag mining gear. Well, no, we don't want to do that because somebody land in the water at that weight. And basically, the airplane's not big enough to accommodate that weight in the water. I said, uh, they'll do it but one time. And once they see that they can't get out of the water because it's too heavy, you know, 1430 is 110 pounds heavier than a normal 1320 water operating. I said, just make the limitation 1320 for water operations, 1430 for airport to airport operations. Oh, okay. Well, what about night VFR? No, we don't want to do that. We're afraid that somebody will land the airplane, you know, at night in the water. And we, Jeff and I looked at each other, they may try it one time. They'll never do it again. It's true. Yeah, yeah. Unless, you know, this caveat saying that it is possible, but, you know, you got to know what you're doing and, you know, have a, have a correct um, landing area. Yeah, definitely. And so any new developments, I know that your website is updated pretty frequently. So if you're interested in learning more about any developments going on at Super Patrol, you can go to their website. Very good. So www.superpatrolusa.com. There you go. And we'll put that link in the show notes as well. So do you guys have any uh, plans for Air Venture? I don't know this year because of the COVID thing. And uh, uh, the problem is this. The guys from Brazil always attend. There's usually two or three that come up out of uh, out of the factory at Brazil to go to Ipanuna, well, or go to um, uh, Air Venture in Oshkosh. They can't get out of Brazil. Oh yeah, and, oh that's it right. So. Yeah, they down to me and Chevy taking a trailer and driving 1,300 miles and flying an airplane there. So I'm, I'm game. We're <laughs> we're expecting uh, to be full bore next year. You know, Sun and Fun Air Venture. Yeah, it's been kind of a ramp-up year and a difficult year for decision-making and planning and everything else. We'll be there in force. Uh, you can visit uh, SPA and Hangar C uh, at the main show or at the seaplane base. We'll have a very large presence there, and we can't wait uh, to go back to Air Venture with a Super Petrol in the near future. So um, it's great having you guys on. It's your first time on the podcast, and I'm sure it's far from the last time we'll have you on. It's just a joy working with all of your team. Uh, we're looking forward to flying the airplane and doing some videos you. with you in the very near future. So I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in once again. And until next week, clear skies and calm waters we are so glad you joined us today if you like today's show i highly encourage you to join the seaplane pilots association and become a member of the largest seaplane community in the world members receive water flying the only full color glossy magazine dedicated to the seaplane community 
and it's available in both printed and digital form. Your membership also includes access to the Water Landing Directory app, which has the Seaplane Flight School Directory and a calendar of seaplane events not only here in the United States, but around the world. The association hosts regular educational workshops, safety seminars, and gatherings for seaplane pilots and anyone with a passion for seaplanes. So look us up online at seaplanes.org, join our community, and support our mission of protecting and promoting water flying.